Welcome to today's episode of the Purdue ASME American Society of Mechanical Engineers podcast, which aims to provide an outlet for not only Purdue students, but all students, learners, and aspiring professionals around the world to learn from experienced professionals in the field of engineering and beyond. I'm your co-host, Liam Kaufman, and joining me today is my fellow co-host, Agathea Theroun, and I'll have Aggie introduce our highly respected guest today. Joining us on the podcast is none other than Dr. Jay Gore, the Riley University Chair Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Purdue University. Dr. Gore was the founding director of the Energy Center at Discovery Park and the founder of the SURF program at Purdue, the award-winning research program for students. He also worked through the U.S. State Department, where he coordinated with U.S. and international governors on the topics of energy and climate issues. Furthermore, he was awarded the best paper of the year by ASME and has authored over 200 conference papers. Dr. Gore, we are so excited to talk to you today. Thank you just so much for coming on. Thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to converse with uh, fellow mechanical engineers, all the mechanical engineering students. But uh, let me add that I do hold courtesy appointments in the School of Aeronautics and Astronautics uh, and at Purdue. That's a great thing to be proud of, not just for me, but for all of us mechanical engineers, because many, many, many of our astronaut alums were actually mechanical engineers who then joined the School of Aeronautics and Astronautics, or there are many astronauts from the School of Aeronautics and Astronautics, and we worked together at the Maurice J. Zucro Laboratories. But our chemical engineering friends would say, all of you aerospace engineers, all of you mechanical engineers, what would you do without the fuel? <laughs> so isn't chemical engineering chemical important? Engineering. So I hold a courtesy appointment in the Davidson School of Chemical Engineering oh, wow. as well. What got you interested into aerospace and chemical engineering after your mechanical engineering endeavors? Uh, so my undergraduate is from the University of Pune where I received a gold medal. Uh, for the first rank. And uh, when uh, I started uh, looking at what I could contribute to the world uh, at the time, uh, and I'm going to date myself a little bit by revealing this, and some of you may not uh, <laughs> necessarily remember uh, that uh, while we do talk about the crisis, uh, the present day crisis, at the time, there was a crisis in Iran where there were U.S. hostages held by the Ayatollahs, and the president was uh, President Carter. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, at the time, there was conversation about energy and energy efficiency being important and the U.S. Sh uh, not relying so much on the Gulf countries for petroleum was important, and those were the conversations. But even at that time, there was discussion of efficient energy efficiency being important and solar energy being important and so forth. So I applied to graduate school, uh, emphasizing the fact that I wanted to work in energy. Penn State, correct? Uh, I did go to Penn State, and uh, uh, I hold my master's and PhD both from our newer addition to the Big Ten Plus, uh, the Nittany Lions. And then I, my advisor moved to the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor as a chair professor in aerospace engineering. So in addition to Purdue uh, being one of the best universities for aerospace, 
uh university of michigan at ann arbor is uh, pretty good too and uh, my advisor there was uh, recruited as the uh, director of the gas dynamics lab and uh, so uh, i had joined jerry's group uh, at penn state to do my phd after coming back from uh, doing a two years uh, job uh, simulating nuclear uh, power plant reactors for operator training wow. in Silver Spring Maryland back to college park That's connections like etc <laughs> uh, for a company called link simulation systems division and uh, i did not know a lot about computer simulations of uh, anything uh, including nuclear power plants in particular but you learn on the job uh, what you do is you kind of say there are things that i have learned in the classroom that are skills and it is up to me to be sharp and uh, let my uh, brain power if you will let my brain work to make networks and connect one thing to another so that i can deliver on any job that i can get i can get challenged to simulating nuclear power plants so that's where i met jerry again and he said uh, I want you to do PhD come back to Penn State and do PhD Jerry was from New York Jerry was one of the persons I have lot of respect for Jerry because uh, w- how he worked with students is he did not uh, uh, leave any confusion with us he did not tell us uh, maybe you should consider PhD now Jerry would say I want you to do a PhD <laughs> and uh, so he recruited me back to Penn State and when he moved to Michigan I kind of said Jerry hey that's not fair you recruited us here and now you are going to michigan so he says you can come to michigan but then i said i'm not going to spend all the co- taking time all the courses again and <laughs> taking area exams at michigan and so forth uh, i'm i'm going to finish my phd here so he said sure uh, but you got to come to michigan to help my lab as a predoctoral fellow so he created a new title called predoctoral fellow and i said i'm a fan of new opportunities and new titles so i became predoctoral fellow at the university of michigan but uh, uh, that aerospace engineering exper- experience helped me mm-hmm. so the thing for you know uh, <coughs> since we are uh, aiming this at uh, students is that uh, regard uh, the opportunity to gain multidisciplinary uh, knowledge uh, as something that contributes to your own development long term and take it always as an opportunity rather than a challenge i completely agree i'm a little bit curious we don't have to get too technical here but how do you simulate a nuclear reactor <laughs> cuz i i imagine there's a lot going on in that process uh in the reactor and i simulated a particular system that is called chemical and volume control system so in a nuclear power plant there is the core where the uh, mass to uh, i guess oppenheimer is popular these days so is einstein so everybody knows mass to energy conversion we all know the e equal to mc square equation etc right so where that m in the e equal to mc square equation us mechanical engineers us thermodynamics teachers would say e equal to mc square is wrong right 
and everybody would challenge us with that. And you have taken thermodynamics, right. you are now taking heat transfer, etc. You would agree with me that the equation should really be equal is should really be written as E equal to delta M C square. Because if it was M C square, none of us would be living. <laughs> It's delta M, and that delta M is very, 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 very small, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, in a power plant simulator, as in any simulator, what you do is you write programs that must run in real time and pretend that they happen to be uh, the real thing. So they will show the operator the pressure in the core, the temperature at various locations in the power plant. Uh, they will uh, read from the operator how they are turning the knobs, what settings they are using, and so on and so forth. So it will become a virtual twin, as they call these days, of the real power plant. Simulator is a virtual twin. Simulator is a virtual rendering of the real thing built for the purposes of training the operator so that the operator does not make the m kinds of mistakes that may have occurred at mm. the Three Mile Island. And my own system, so we worked in a team. That experience was very, very important because you have to, in the real world, work in teams. Uh, what pressure you calculate from your vessel feeds the flow that goes into the next person's simulator, simulated device. Take gas turbine, for example. The person who calculates combustors, their temperature output is feeding the first set of blades of the uh, turbine. And those blades will survive or not, depending on whether that temperature was properly controlled, etc. So everything is intertwined. And in the team that simulated the reactors, in my case, I simulated a reactor up in Kiwani, Wisconsin. Uh, every member has to interact and make sure that their interfaces work properly. And teamwork, therefore, is important. At the same time, the lead engineer would inform you that you should focus on your system. Your system is important. The level control of a pressure vessel is very important, but so is the chemical composition. And you would believe this or not, chemical composition of the primary system in a nuclear power plant is very important. It is called boron control. And the amount of boron going too low will essentially cause the core to fail. The amount of boron going too high will cause the generator system to stop because the turbine system stopped, etc. So nuclear power plants run on a Rankine cycle. Mm. On the note of thermodynamics, I know Dr. Grohl and you share very similar interests on the topic of sustainability, climate change. Have you guys had any initiatives together in, in terms of uh, promoting these types of green programs? So uh, building energy is a very important component of energy consumption in the United States as well as all around the world. 
and Professor Grohl, you mentioned Dr. Grohl, his expertise is particularly in heat pumps and in multi-stage heat pumps so that what is called the coefficient of performance is high. He has also contributed tremendously. By the way, uh, Eckhart Grohl worked at the University of Maryland as well in a laboratory uh, that is run by my former colleague, uh, Professor Reinhard Radermacher. Okay. Yeah, and that was uh, brought up on when we were interviewing him for the podcast as well. So did he bring yeah. up Reinhard's name? Radermacher, he would say. Radermacher. <laughs> so, uh, and then, of course, Professor Grohl will say, for example, and Radermacher would slip into saying, Chumbaishpil. And so, you know, it's wonderful uh, that you get to work with uh, experts from all around the world, and from time to time they'll educate you on their own languages and uh, so forth. So, uh, uh, back to you know your question about uh, interactions with Professor Grohl. Uh, he invited me to his office. Uh, he's the head mm -hmm. and uh, fantastic leader because he works very, very hard. And one of the qualities that is very uh, great in our head, uh, Eckhart Grohl, is uh, that he focuses on the job at hand mm -hmm. and the what he's trying to address or what he's trying to do, etc. So at the moment, for example, you know that Purdue West Lafayette uh, and Purdue uh, Indianapolis, uh, they call themselves now PIN, Purdue Indianapolis, mm -hmm. PIN. Used to be Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis. Their faculty have now joined us. They have tremendous faculty in the areas of battery. So energy is very broad area to sort of connect back to your uh, question. Energy is a very, very broad area. And as director of the Energy Center, I had to learn about all areas of energy, including building uh, energy usage and how uh, buildings of the kind that can work nicely with minimum energy uses uh, can be operated, including with heat pumps that uh, Eckhart specializes in. So Eckhart said, you know, we have the opportunity to form a group that we might call sustainable energy, particularly by inviting faculty at Purdue Indianapolis to join the sustainable energy group. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's an, that's an assignment I have taken, and we will be, uh, we had launched the energy center in Discovery Park at Purdue. It's time to bring uh, its version uh, back that is for the current times and the current challenges that uh, uh, we we face, which certainly connect back to climate change and uh, what level of CO2 emissions are acceptable and how CO2 emissions could be reduced while transitioning to newer renewable sources. All sources of energy are important because as human beings, our quality of life depends on uh, availability of uh, sustainable energy, if you will. When it comes to sustainable energy, um, honestly, any area of research that you're familiar with, like what are some of the biggest trends that you see happening? And I guess, where do you see the future going when it comes to sustainable energy? Yes. So I'm fortunate to be at Purdue and work with, uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, Professor Rakesh Agrawal, who is in chemical engineering. Uh, 
I had a role in recruiting Rakesh from industry to university. So one of the great things about Purdue is that many, many of our chair professors have very long experience in the industry at the highest levels and have made tremendous contributions to, quote, the real world, unquote, etc. I sort of put the real world in quotes because I do think that the academic world is also real world and we can certainly uh, design our courses, design our laboratories, design our curriculum, our projects uh, so that uh, students do experience the real world uh, while on campus, not just when they do summer internships and so forth, hence the Summer Undergraduate Research Fellowships Program. But uh, you did ask the question about uh, uh, the uh, forms of energy that Purdue specializes in renewable energy in particular. Professor Mark Lundstrom uh, is a Purdue PhD. His advisor, Richard Schwartz, used to be the dean uh, at Purdue of the schools of engineering. Uh, Professor Lundstrom holds the record in simulating solar uh, collectors of the highest efficiency kind. Professor Agrawal is working on designing newer junctions that will surpass any solar efficiency that one would uh, uh, have. In the market, there are already solar cells that uh, can generate energy at a lower cost than most other sources. Uh, certainly, solar energy challenges are, will it be at scale? What would we do at nighttime? What would we do on the days that are not so sunny? Uh, and so forth. So those challenges uh, everyone's kind of aware of. And for that reason, the area of storage comes up big. And for that reason, battery storage is important. Some of our colleagues in the School of Material Science, uh, School of Chemical Engineering, as well as School of Mechanical Engineering, there are four or five colleagues on the West Lafayette campus who are really great in the field of batteries. You may have heard of Professor Paul in uh, chemical engineering, Professor Mukherjee in uh, mechanical engineering, and so forth. Uh, so, uh, and then there are colleagues at Purdue Indianapolis. So batteries are very, very important. Energy storage is very important. I would be remiss in not mentioning that an engineering research center that was founded within the School of Mechanical at Engineering at Purdue for high-pressure hydraulic storage wow. is very, very important. And that was founded by Monica Ivantasinova. Unfortunately, Monica passed away, but uh, uh, faculty colleagues continue that center. And high-pressure hydraulic storage of energy is also very important, a possible so, uh, way of storing energy. You know, a lot of experts nowadays are saying that we've crossed the point of re no return in terms of uh, uh, climate change and global warming. People are saying that, you know, no matter what we do now, it's, it's going to be really difficult to come back and, and, and fix what we've done to the planet. Are we, in, in your perspective and opinion, do you think that we're doomed? Like, what, what's next to come? How, how are we going to fix what we've done to the planet? Short answer is no. Uh, That's good to hear. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not, right? Because this question comes up, the dooms question comes up. Right. Uh, I, of course, uh, my last name is Gore, and from time to time, our former vice president, Gore, uh, uh, is blamed for 
the gloom and doom scenario about uh, climate change and how we are to the point of no return, etc. What I would say is that it's a very important question to ask. I'm really glad that you're asking this question. The next generation is asking this question. The generation after yours is asking this question with even more intensity. Right. Children are asking this question and they don't understand any answer we give them. They will ask us, how could you? Yeah. <laughs> Those are the three words they use. How could you? Right? Didn't you know better? And the answer is that, yes, we do know better. However, the point of no return has not been reached. Will we ever return back to the same mass of ice on the polar cap, on the North Pole, or on the South Pole, or in the oceans? Mm -hmm. Will we ever be able to restore the acidity level, the pH level of the ocean? Will we ever be able to restore the forests in the Amazon? Those are the important questions to ask. And uh, for example, at the moment, the pandas are in news, right? Uh, there are many, many species of uh, not just animals, but plants that are threatened. Will we ever be able to restore the way things were? Mm -hmm. The answer to that is uh, unfortunately uh, a, an educated no. Uh, return, because we define progress, we define energy use, we define utilization of the natural world for the benefit of the living, including human beings, as uh, the march that we are on, right? And there are philosophers who say, you know, there are so many planets out there, uh, life on a planet, particularly human life on a planet, may or may not be in the nature's plan or in the whoever is the ultimate powers, their right. plan, wow. right? So that's profound. Uh, as a mechanical engineer, as someone who's focusing on sustainable energy, I'm not able to answer this question or I'm not able to, while I understand the question, while I'm afraid of the question, I'm not able to answer it. And what I am able to say is that certainly as mechanical engineers, we need to learn and develop the skill sets to uh, provide sustainability, which we learn in the continuity equation as if we do not balance the input and the output, then we go into a transient system. And the only way to minimize transient system is exercise control. That includes feedback control. And that includes processing of the material that we create as an exhaust. <laughs> so one of the projects that I'm involved in, and this was actually a project that uh, led to our Arden Bement Award for the best research in the College of Engineering and the College of Science uh, last year. I don't know, you probably saw. I uh, have a, uh, they, they have made a nice video of the uh, session that I had, I had a chance to share our work. And uh, Professor uh, Bob Lacht, who happens to be the director, current director of the Maurice J. Zucro Laboratories, uh, Bob uh, 
nominated me for this award. And uh, uh, Bob, uh, the way he presented the nomination, and we were laughing or we were chatting with each other saying, this is dead on arrival, isn't it? There is no way the committee who considers these nominations is going to read the first few lines and see that it was work on a coal-burning power plant in North Dakota and still continue reading and considering. <laughs> but sure enough, there were 150 jobs of North Dakotans involved. Their children were going to miss school, miss school lunches, etc. if the parents lost the jobs. right? So it's a serious matter. How do we transition? At the moment now, with support from various sources, this plant will become a plant involving CO2 sequestration. Now, there are concerns with geologists and others. Uh, does CO2 sequestration mean CO2 treatment? Isn't the real way to re, uh, sus be sustainable, not change the planet, is return the fossil fuel that mm -hmm. we used back to that form, back to that hydrocarbon form. And that's a very honest, accurate, scientific argument. However, if we are able to prevent the warming that is continuous, if we are able to prevent that CO2 from absorbing the sunlight to increase the temperatures, or being dissolved in the ocean to increase the salinity, etc. then we are addressing the immediate CO2 issue. And that is by sequestration into geological formations that will lead to carbonate formation, or that will lead to just high-pressure underground reservoirs of uh, carbon dioxide. So all of this is are things that you learn in mechanical engineering. and Hopefully, we as teachers are able to find time to bring these real-world applications to your attention and not spend all of the time in the mathematics of underlying mathematics of the field. So do you think there's like, I guess, one biggest issue? Like you mentioned the Amazon, um, glaciers shrinking. Like what is the biggest issue, I guess, that people should focus, focus on when it comes to client change? Where do you think is the uh, biggest threat? Uh, so I visited uh, Texas, Houston recently, and I was spending time with uh, a very wealthy person whose house is very nicely, fully, very well air-conditioned, etc. But this person also has to step out in 100 20 plus Fahrenheit temperatures Cooking. from time to time. <laughs> Fahrenheit, not Celsius, right? <laughs> so uh, I think uh, the uh, communities, uh, their uh, environment being affected, the health of human beings being affected by swings in temperature, uh, swings that are going from very, very high very hot summers to very cold winters is the uh, immediate uh, threat that we will see. Uh, there is uh, some evidence, uh, empirical or otherwise, that says the number of cyclones are increasing. 
the number of tornadoes are increasing, the weather, the climate. Uh, there are two parts to this, right? There's the weather that's local, the climate that is more global, not the Earth's climate, not the Earth's atmosphere, but the continents, for example, or the states, etc. Those uh, uh, disturbances are growing, and that's where the immediate threat, if you will, uh, is. Uh, and for that reason, uh, you asked about the point of no return type of thing. Uh, what we really need to do uh, to address those is not necessarily uh, dream that there will be fewer tornadoes next year or that Houston will have a better weather or better. Houston will become, will start to have San Diego-like weather uh, next year. Those things are not possible. Mm -hmm. uh, what is possible is uh, uh, high coefficient of performance heat pumps that are more affordable, that are not reserved for the wealthy only. Uh, what is more affordable is ensuring that water is available to all communities uh, because that becomes, water supplies become challenged uh, when uh, weather events uh, disturb com communities and so forth. So uh, resilience is the word that comes to mind. What we can do, what we need to do is address the immediate challenges with resilience. And uh, the midterm, or the short term and the midterm challenges with changes in lifestyle that will lead to higher efficiency vehicles, um, uh, shared transportation, uh, and so forth. By the way, Interactions with uh, the multidisciplinarity part we touched on is uh, very important in that uh, uh, our colleagues in civil engineering are working with our colleagues in mechanical engineering to develop what are called smart roads. Yeah. Uh, where uh, you have heard of this. They project, charge on the right? Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. And so the efficiency of the devices that we use goes up and therefore consumption goes down and so forth. So slowly but surely, we would be uh, getting there. Uh, we touched on forestation. Uh, I have recently visited and perhaps uh, should have visited, uh, should visit every, uh, have some of you visited uh, southern Indiana, particularly the forests in southern Indiana? I've only gone north recently, yeah. probably. You have visited. Yeah. And aren't those... Uh, Oh, trees beautiful and they're so tall and the if you try to uh, you know hug a tree the you you can't right no. i mean sometimes three or four people will have to join hands to bring one tree in their uh, uh, in the ring we're talking about indiana here right southern indiana oh, wow. yeah like, yeah like redwood please visit wow. <laughs> I, have a, I have a picture of me and my buddy of trying to reach all the way around the tree around the tree right so please do visit southern indiana and uh, so forestation and uh, uh, protecting the forests we have, but then trying to restore is uh, also a very important step that one needs to take for the short term. Mm -hmm. And then there are midterm and the long term. And our physicist friends will say, all this is going to be solved by fusion energy. But one of the things I learned from my advisor is fusion energy is real and it's going to be here real soon. Mm -hmm. And I have really heard that 
really, really, really heard that all of my life. So I'm like, Jerry, what did you say? So he says, uh, if it happens, if the breakthrough happens, that's great. But in the meantime, it's very, very important to focus on increasing the efficiency of gas turbines, such as those made by Rolls-Royce in Indiana and such as those made by General Electric in New York and by Siemens in Florida. Uh, all of these uh, corporations work with Purdue, recruit from Purdue, but have also sponsored research at the Maurice J. Zucrow's laboratory. Uh, I should be, uh, I should not forget mentioning Pratt & Whitney, uh, who was acquired by Raytheon, so now Raytheon, uh, as well as uh, solar turbines in the great San Diego, California, uh, and uh, Allied and so forth. So there are, uh, uh, gas turbine has certain advantages uh, over the reciprocating engine uh, for mid-level uh, power generation. Uh, I should also say that uh, uh, our Columbus-based uh, Cummins uh, makes diesel engines. And uh, sometimes you might, I might anticipate a question from you like, uh, so many of my friends are being recruited by Cummins. Uh, is there future in uh, working for Cummins? My answer would be the Cummins president, Jen uh, Ramsey, who worked in my laboratory. Wow. <laughs> uh, and uh, as an undergraduate researcher, talk about the surf res the undergraduate research That's program. That's incredible. Uh, you should see some of her uh, leading statements about increasing the efficiency mm -hmm. and addressing the footprint, carbon footprint of the diesel in a manner that is sustainable. Because diesel power is sometimes the only kind of power that is affordable to certain communities that can be deployed rapidly in emergency zones and so on and so forth. So uh, as Purdue, as Purdue Energy uh, Institute that we hope to form again, Renewable Energy Institute or Future Energy Institute or Sustainable Energy Institute is the adjective that we used before. Uh, we uh, sort of, uh, this phrase, all of the above, is often credited to former Energy Secretary Ernie Moniz, who was on our advisory committee. Uh, I'm still in touch with Ernie. He lives in Washington, D.C. now. He runs a think tank now. Uh, but uh, Ernie Moniz uh, kind of uh, presented this as a, uh, uh, the phrase he used was, all of the above sources are important. All of the above sources of energy are important. Each one of them has a role. And uh, so that's uh, kind of an important uh, aspect. You mentioned sustainability. Stanford University have formed the Door School of Sustainability that actually uh, uh, has uh, amongst its leaders, uh, uh, Aron Majumdar is the dean now of the Door School of Sustainability. But then former Secretary of Energy, why I remembered them is because uh, I remembered Ernie Moniz and then uh, Steve Chu, the Nobel laureate, who was former Energy Secretary, is uh, a faculty member in the Stanford uh, School of Sustainability now. And uh, uh, Chu's, uh, when I teach thermodynamics, I can kind of bring this up from time to time. Uh, Chu's Nobel Prize was for reaching the lowest temperature ever by any laboratory in uh, his lab at Bell Labs. 
Wow. What's that temperature? Yeah. Temperature lowest. Well, how What's the number? As close to zero. I don't. Uh, I ca- I couldn't recite you the ten to the minus oh, okay. somethings, but uh, it's not zero. Yeah. It's not ten to the minus infinity. <laughs> uh, but uh, let's all look up. What was the lowest temperature reached for which uh, Secretary Chul received the Nobel Prize? You got Jamie over here. (laughs) That's incredible. Look it up, the lowest temperature. And uh, you could put Steve Chu's name in there. C-H-I-U is his last name. Wow. Uh, uh, But, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's kind of interesting. But then you teach Carnot theorem and you say Carnot efficiency uh, is infinite if the source temperature is the highest, right? It goes into the denominator. One minus T low over T high. Uh, source temperature is the highest. <coughs> what Steve Chu might tell you is that if the sink temperature is zero, no matter what the source temperature is, as long as it's finite, mm. the efficiency is 100%. Because relatively, it's incredibly it is, high. Uh, it's not even relative that comes in. One minus zero over mm-hmm. a finite number is 100%. Right. So that leading one is what makes it 100%. However, as mechanical engineers, we live in the real world. So we do know that the sink temperature has to be within a certain reasonable range. And the source temperature has to be within a certain reasonable range as well. So we are in the 30 to 60% efficiency world. So we have to figure out a way to manage the 40% that we must reject. Mm -hmm. So what turned out to be the temperature? It was 38 trillionths of a degree. Trillionths. Negative 217 degrees Celsius. 38 trillionths. So it was 38 trillionths above um, zero Kelvin. Above zero Kelvin, wow. 38 trillions above zero Kelvin. That's incredible. (laughs) You know, on on the topic of sustainability, you've had the opportunity to work with a lot of government officials and Mm -hmm. coordinate and Mm -hmm. kind of influence their their policies in terms of climate change and sustainable programs. Uh, How keen are these politicians on really listening to, you know, cutting edge research? And and what's really the turnaround on them implementing the policies that you recommend to them um, specifically for for climate change and uh, sustainability? So what I have worked with my specific assignment in the Department of State was to write uh, short uh, papers for my uh, boss, the Special Representative for Intergovernmental Relations was her title, and she reported to the Secretary of State. And her office's uh, uh, assignment was to present U.S. Uh, foreign policy mm-hmm. to state and local officials, including the governors. So my, uh, I participated in COP16, which is a meeting, annual meeting of all countries discussing climate change. And uh, this COP16 was held in Cancun. And... Uh, I had the ability to participate there and then visit with many governors. uh, uh, And uh, what I will share with you is that uh, uh, policymakers in general, governors in particular, they 
need to attend to many, many, many challenges and the needs of their citizens. Transportation is very high on the list. Water is very high on the list. All types of utilities that their consume their voters, their citizens are able to receive education, uh, supplies, etc. Those are very high on their priority list. Whenever there is a climate event or whenever there is a weather event, they do wonder if this has something to do with the so-called so-called climate change, so-called global warming, if you will, etc. So uh, if your question is aimed at kind of saying, is there a need for uh, us as engineers to communicate with political science majors, with politicians, uh, with uh, uh, those who have not had as much time to learn about conservation equations, uh, there absolutely is. Right. They are uh, very reasonable, very smart, very intelligent people, but uh, communication, direct communication with them is very important, and then they definitely understand. In, in your experience, how keen are they in kind of implementing the policies that you recommend? Uh, so uh, one of the things I would say is that the Department of State does not make the environmental or energy policy for the United States of America. Uh, there are secretaries uh, with at, at the state level for energy and environmental issues within the state. So we have, particularly the United States of America, we have, you know, states make decisions uh, related to internal matters. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly the Environmental Protection Agency, as far as citizens move across states, as far as pollution moves across states, etc., they have the authority, Congress, uh, Congress votes on uh, rules and regulations that uh, they can make, etc. From time to time, uh, labeling or from time to time, instituting CO2 emissions per uh, kilowatt hour, uh, how much CO2 can you manage per kilowatt hour, those types of conversations have come up. However, uh, my opinion at this time is that we are far from accepting that what we are probably close to is uh, accepting incentive-based uh, operations rather than tax or penalty-based operations for uh, carbon dioxide management. And as a mechanical engineer, as a combustion engineer, as a professor, I definitely don't want to call a major species that actually leads to photosynthesis and growth of the forest that we were talking about, a pollutant. Mm -hmm. It is a stable compound. It happens to be the second oxide of carbon that uh, needs to be managed. Its concentration cannot go up so much that it leads to challenges to the uh, weather, the climate, and sort of disturbs the planet in a uh, manner that uh, uh, the nature cannot restore. Uh, certainly human being beings cannot, right? We uh, need to learn this lesson that uh, we live on the earth, we don't control the earth. Uh, and uh, uh, so from that point of view, uh, I think uh, uh, we will not have uh, uh, CO2 as a 
we we will not have uh, drastic uh, governmental action on CO2 that is uh, sustainable. I see. I think communities uh, will not accept it. So, Dr. Gore, if I came to you as a freshman and I'm super ambitious and I was like, I want to save the world, I want to fight climate change, I want to, I guess, make positive change in the world of sustainability, what would you recommend in terms of how I could maximize impact? As you just said, you worked with politicians. Should I just say, you know what, research, I don't want to try to contribute some narrow research and something really specific that won't have too much of an impact. Maybe I should become a politician and try to really get things moving and make things happen. What would you say to that student who came to you um, in terms of how they can maximize impact and really make a difference when it comes to these big challenges? What I would say to every student, including yourself, is that uh, you should really do what you can differentiate yourself in. Mm. So if that involves interviewing experts and drawing uh, the best of their knowledge out so that they can uh, leave the script aside and have a conversation with you as of the kind that we had this, uh, uh, this afternoon, I would say go for that right uh, and if you then ask does that mean I wasted all my time taking four math classes and three thermodynamics <laughs> classes and two fluid uh, mechanics classes I'd say absolutely not because the skills the the knowledge we develop can be utilized in all of the different fields I became a professor after failing I'm saying that with some tongue-in-cheek uh, after my bachelor's, I worked in a factory that made trucks, diesel trucks. I quit after two years. I did my master's. I worked in a nuclear power plant simulation company. I quit after two years, and then I did my PhD. My preference after completing PhD was to work in an industry. I applied. I was interviewed by a big we mentioned many turbine companies. One of the biggest turbine companies, I had a very nice interview in their research center and I was expecting an offer. And the person who interviewed me called me in a friendly manner and said that your advisor really want you to, wants you to consider an academic position. So I went to Jerry Faith and I said, Jerry, you told me I could do whatever I wanted to do and now I hear. So he says, yeah, you could do whatever you want to do. You can still take that job or you can work in a government uh, laboratory or you could follow me and become a chair professor somewhere. So I kind of went through these steps and realized that what I really liked to do was first teach thermodynamics. And uh, is it repetitive? Yes. Do I learn something new every time I teach it? Absolutely, yes. And do research in the field of energy. And I have moved from one to the other to the other. And at this moment, I would say tremendous opportunities exist in data science. So what has changed? Computer powers have changed. Computer memory has changed. Availability of data has changed. Many, many, many data sets 
have become available because of transparency that the internet has brought. That is one thing I'd say. The second I would say is tremendous opportunity. If you could become an engineer whose expertise is in separating good data from bad data in all of the different fields, mm -hmm. separate bad data from good data, using what kind of tool? Of course, statistics. But using physics-based tools, using science-based tools, using fundamentals-based tools, if you can separate bad data from good data, career is made. Many, many, many professionals are needed in the business of, I call it a business, separating bad data from good data. Because data that all of the corporations have, all of the agencies have, in fact, we as human beings, the data, government and other, all of the data we have is a tremendous asset. Why are we not using that asset? Just like the material scientists would tell us, if it is mixed with lots and lots and lots of impurities, its quality does not come out. We cannot utilize it. So if we can purify data, mm -hmm. separate good from bad, we can really make a difference to the world. Yeah. Learn. So that's my last comment is that uh, uh, separating good data from bad data, uh, if you can make a career in that, that's my best career advice I can give you. Awesome. That's pretty broad, so I feel like you can apply it to uh, quite a bunch of different careers. But then if you asked me what courses should I take, I would say statistics. Yeah. That's where they teach good data versus bad data. And and programming, I mean. And uh, Python programming. and uh, uh, But you know what has happened is certainly Python is a basic skill that you need for machine learning and AI and so forth. But the large corporations such as Google and IBM and others have made uh, uh, their codes open source and available for those who can learn and apply them with uh, uh, with expertise. Uh, so I would uh, not so much say uh, be a programmer, right? My hope is that you'll stay a mechanical engineer but be able to use the exactly. computers and employ many programmers so that you can achieve the uh, goal that you want to achieve, which is of sustainability. Well, Dr. Gore, this was a phenomenal conversation. I wish we could keep talking for another like three hours, but uh, <laughs> we have to cut it. So thank you so much for coming on. We really enjoyed hearing about what you had to say about all these different topics. Appreciate all the advice and insights. And uh, yeah, thank you. What I will do is uh, leave this with you. Okay. And then uh, if you're doing research on the podcast, uh, you could uh, teach yourself how different what the interviewee ends up saying is from the notes they prepare. <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> Thank you so much for this. This is such an informative episode. I really enjoyed talking to you. And so for, will I get to uh, see or hear it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We will have the episode out. And for all our listeners, oh, thank you. For all our listeners, uh, thank you for joining us on this episode of ASME Untapped. If you have any thoughts, questions, or even suggestions for future guests, uh, future episodes, any ideas, drop us a line at asme.podcast at gmail.com or fill out the Google form link below. 
um, in the show notes. We also are going to drop our LinkedIn's as well. So feel free to connect. We love to stay connected with our listeners. So until next time, stay curious, stay inspired, and join us on the next episode. Thank you, guys.